0: Hey, everyone, this is Sean Johnson from Digital Intent, and this is the Disruptors podcast um, coming to you from uh, lovely Evanston, Illinois, on a Tuesday evening, and uh, really excited to kind of go into this with you, uh, the 11 uh, laws of product development. (music) Creating a startup is extremely hard. There are dozens of barriers and pitfalls uh, along the way. And success requires fanatical execution and a bit of luck. But while there are hundreds of ways that startups can fail that are completely outside of your control, the product isn't one of them. There are lots of ways that you can build a product or a particular feature, but not all of them are created equal. And we've built over 100 products at uh, Digital Intent over the last six years, and and every single product has been different. Um, But all of those reps have helped us, I think, discover some broadly applicable patterns uh, that we believe can increase your chances of success. Um, And that's what we're going to talk about today, Uh, 11 ideas. uh, You could even call them laws of product development. And these are certainly not comprehensive. There are probably a lot of different types of applications or technologies that these wouldn't necessarily apply to, you know, um, IoT apps, um, artificial intelligence stuff, VR. uh, But if you're building, especially uh, any sort of a web or mobile product, whether that's consumer facing or uh, even for internal users, uh, I think that uh, some of these rules will be uh, super helpful for you. And so with that, let's get started. So the first, and in my opinion, the most important rule is to do everything that you can to avoid building something that people don't want. The number one reason that new products don't fail, in my opinion, is an inability to achieve product market fit. And this is usually because of a lack of customer development or insufficient customer development. So that often looks like people going from an idea on the back of a napkin At the bar with friends, to writing down, you know, really detailed requirements, and not even asking whether people want the product in the first place. And so, if someone hasn't started building a product yet, one of the first questions is, is, uh, you know, how many customers have you talked to? And the most common answer that we'll get, um, you know, either uh, at DI or with uh, Founder Equity, our our early stage venture fund, is zero, Um, or something like maybe I talked to. A couple of people, and uh, when you probe, you find out that they talked the whole time, and the uh, the only purpose of the feedback was really just to kind of validate their initial hypothesis um, and to use some social proof in their pitch deck or whatever. And so um, it's kind of crazy um, that these folks would waste months of their lives and thousands of dollars of their money or other people's money to solve a problem that they're not even sure exists. And so, um, but you see it all the time. You see it with people, you see it with companies. And so that's sort of the number one rule. Let's de-risk that problem hypothesis and that customer hypothesis as soon as we possibly can. Let's figure out whether um, a, the customer that we're targeting has that problem and be 100% honest with ourselves as we receive feedback because you know it's, it's really, really easy to sort of iterate on the problem and the solution before you start building something. Um, but once you're you know, creating code and all of that, it's gonna be much, much more difficult. So the second one is to build an MVP, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean software. Uh, the purpose of an MVP is just to test the riskiest assumption in your business. And that almost always can be done without writing a single line of code. Uh, we have an entrepreneur friend in, in town uh, who, was testing his loyalty platform with small businesses and before building anything he just used keynote and loaded it up on an ipad made a clickable prototype and then would go up and down the street uh you know in the busy shopping districts in town and try to sell them on the platform and you know they they'd usually would say no but he would go a block or two find out why and then go sit in starbucks for an hour and make changes to his to his mockups and head back out again and he was able to learn more arguably in a single day than many entrepreneurs would learn in months even um, you know another client of ours was doing a machine learning startup targeting hospitals um, but was able to get a uh, 30 customers and he got to I think a one million dollar run rate uh, before investing in an automated system because uh, he had a, a basically an excel spreadsheet that was able to run the analysis and so he could get the data from the client and then run his analysis and get it back to him. And they honestly didn't care um, how he did it. They just cared about the results and the results worked. So he was able to kind of get to a place where he uh, you know, eventually wanted to build it out, but he, by the time it was ready to sort of build out the full system, yeah, he had more than enough data to kind of validate demand for this and had a profitable business already and got to a place where he you know, couldn't scale anymore doing the manual sort of CSV process um, and that was when you made the investment and kind of doing the machine learning stuff. And so, um, you know, I think code is always going to be more expensive to build, more expensive to change. And, uh, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, I think it maybe it sounds like it's lost time uh, by waiting to build it, but it's usually, you know, I would say more than made up for by, um, you know, conserving your burn and getting confidence that, you know, when you actually Start writing this code that uh, you've validated those underlying assumptions, and you've, you know, fundamentally de-risked the business to a, you know, a, a greater degree. The next law uh, is that uh, don't underestimate the uh, difficulty of behavior change. So the average user has, I think, 26 apps on their phone. Uh, the most recent study I saw. And only five of those they use on a regular basis, and that probably maps pretty closely to how you use your phone. Um, and there are over two million apps in the App Store, right? So the math suggests that you know getting uh, them to not only download the the app but to integrate it into their lives is not a, a small feat. Uh, and so you know I think it's extremely rare that people are going to adopt a new solution. Um, for a problem, especially if they've already solved it for, their, for themselves or if there are solutions that are sort of good enough. You know, you think about the number of weather apps out there. Um, I don't need a weather app that's maybe 5% more accurate than what I currently have. The app I, I have is is good enough. Um, even broader than that, though, when you think about it, you're not just competing against other uh, products in your category. You're You're really competing against literally every other demand on my time or attention. And so a a new solution is going to have to either be, uh, in my opinion, dramatically better than the status quo or uh, be, you know, sort of a complete reimagining of the experience in order to sort of dislodge, um, you know, my existing behavior and kind of disrupt that pattern. And then, you know, carve out space for me to um, have the motivation to kind of integrate this new solution into my life. The next one is to uh, pursue simplicity uh, as much as you possibly can. So um, most of the apps that people love, at least from what I've seen, uh, are obsessed with what we at DI call the core experience, um, meaning the the one or at most two things um, that the customer is really kind of using your product for. And I think it's really, really rare for products to try to do 12 things simultaneously and to kind of pull it off and to do them all really, really well. And yet um, that is the tendency for most uh, folks kind of building stuff as they think that they have to sort of compete on features uh, and that's just not the case. I think that's especially true for mobile apps. Uh, you know, if the core experience isn't amazing, you know, bolting additional features onto the side, isn't going to move the needle because the, the core experience of the product is garbage um, and needs to be improved. If, if, the additional features are going to be the thing that makes it successful, um, you know, it begs the question, maybe the the additional feature you're bolting on should actually represent the core experience. So, um, you know, uh, be obsessed with making me kind of fall in love with that core experience and and don't worry about, um, you know, all of the other sort of stuff that's on the side. Spend 80% of your time kind of iterating on, um, on that core experience and only really add additional functionality if your customers are, are yelling at you. Now I would caveat that uh, with one, I guess, uh, modification. So even if you create a really great core experience, it's not going to matter if people don't stick around long enough to sort of experience it. And so the first time user experience or what we would call the onboarding process is going to be essential to make the light bulb go on for your customers and give them an opportunity to actually experience, uh, that core experience. Um, I think a lot of people assume that the user's motivation is, is super high and they're going to be willing to jump over whatever hurdles there are, uh, in your product to kind of get to that core experience. And, you know, it's true that their, their motivation is probably as high at signup as it will ever be. Um, their enthusiasm is quickly going to, you know, take a turn for the worse if that onboarding process is in any way cumbersome or confusing or even just takes too long to get them, uh, to that core experience. So, uh, ideally, um, you know, you, you spend a tremendous amount of time focusing on that onboarding experience. I would lump that kind of into that 80%. Um, most, most product designers kind of treat it as something that you do right at the end. Um, or they'll make like, you know, um, You know, if you used a mobile app, you've probably seen those real card-based kind of tours, um, which is better than nothing, but in my opinion, is kind of a lazy approach and probably not the most effective. Um, And so I would argue that you treat the onboarding process as an essential part of that core experience. Um, Ideally, have it assist the user in... Uh, in trying that core experience directly, so creating content or completing whatever activity it is that you know you think is going to kind of maximize that chance of adoption. Um, and one other point I would add to that is is not everybody's going to get all the way through there um, and get to that core experience. The reality is that some of those people are going to bail. Um, so don't neglect you know neglect the uh, the role that email can play um, in that onboarding process. Um, especially if you're doing like a SaaS product or something like that's on a free to paid, you know, kind of trial, um, use email, use push notifications as an opportunity to kind of educate your user on the value of the product post registration, either get them to get to that light bulb moment if they bailed, or, um, if they did engage in that to get them to, uh, do it again or again, to kind of build a habit, um, or even, you know, kind of introduced folks that are using it on a regular basis to some power features Uh, that might kind of help them achieve lock-in. Along those lines, one other point about uh, email. Um, A lot of people think that um, they think of it as a marketing tool, and that's true uh, in most cases, Uh, and it is going to be kind of one of your primary tools for increasing retention along with push notifications and and the like. But, um, you know, uh, it actually can actually be uh, part of the core experience itself, uh, and I think a lot of people sort of underestimate the power that that can be. They get tunnel vision. They start to think about their product as um, a this has to be a desktop application or a mobile application or something like that. And the reality is is that your customers hiring your product to accomplish a job for them, and the form factor ultimately doesn't matter, uh, except in uh its ability to make that core experience easier or 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 harder right and so um you think about like an admin for example when we build you know products you know whether they're internal or customer facing or whatever there's almost always some kind of an admin component to it Um, either for you know managing users or managing customers or whatever or if it's an internal app there's some kind of a permissioning component to it where you have um, you know your your internal users, and then you have admin users that have some analytics or you know special superpowers or whatever. Um, and so you always need that functionality. and yet no one really wants another site to have to log into, right? Like all they really care about um, is maybe that 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 uh, you know the, the, the three or four analytics that are on that dashboard. so maybe maybe it's easier for you just to send that to them as a weekly email, right? Uh, and then they're getting the utility of the product. It doesn't make the product any less useful, um, but it's saving them the inconvenience of having to log in and having to remember another password and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, a couple of consumer products, if you think about Quora, if anybody uses Quora, that email digest is a fantastic example. Um, you know, it's, it's continually interesting. It causes people to engage with the product much more frequently than maybe they otherwise would. Um, you know, Medium, the Medium Digest, I think is another good example. Um, and so, uh, ask yourself: Like, do can I deliver the core experience itself, and not just um, use email as a marketing message or text as a marketing message? Can I actually deliver the core experience through those channels, uh, and have them be sort of an essential part of the user experience? Because any channel that allows you to solve the customer's problem um, is a is a is a viable channel and should definitely be explored the next law is to compete on what i would call iteration speed so um, the first version of your product is almost always going to be wrong Um, the user might not understand the value proposition or maybe the onboarding process is too cumbersome or you get them in there and they engage in that, that that you know the core experience but they forget and they don't come back or um you know, maybe the value is just isn't sufficient for them to kind of upgrade from a free to a paid plan or something like that. And so um, what's important is to expect that and to plan uh, for uh, the need to sort of iterate on your product. Um, one benefit, in my opinion, of kind of focusing or an additional benefit of focusing on that core experience is that it limits the surface area of your product. You know, if you're not having to do 12 things, but you're really spending your time focusing on those one or two things, they're going to be really um the things that kind of move the needle for you, um, it gives you less to have to worry about and allows you to iterate much more quickly. Um, Eric Reese, who's you know the founder of kind of the Lean Startup Movement, one of the things he talks a lot about is this idea of the build, measure, learn loop. And the the, the key insight from that is the speed through which you can move through that loop, meaning I have a hypothesis, I build and test it in some fashion, I study the data, uh, qualitative data or qualitative data, whatever it is, and uh, either roll out that uh, experiment if it was successful or kind of iterate on it. All other things being equal, the company that can go through that build, measure, and learn loop the fastest is, is usually going to win, right? And so uh, it's really, really important that you commit to a cadence of rapid iteration. Um, you know, one important point on that, don't iterate just for the sake of iterating. Uh, obviously, iterate based on data. Uh, And that obviously assumes that you have proper analytics set up behind the scenes, um, which will be hard to do sometimes if you're just using standard analytics packages or if you haven't set up the right events. Um, Ideally, you're tracking um, not just the big events like registrations or orders or things like that, but you're actually also tracking the activities that lead up to that. But identify those actions uh, and and monitor them. And what you're looking for is what uh, folks call sort of that aha moment. For your app, it's that moment where there's a certain maybe combination of behaviors that uh, users engage in that are really predictive of uh, becoming an engaged user. And so you want to try to use either your your analytics package if you can, if you can, um, if you can get there from that, uh, or or if you need to actually going into the database itself and um, obviously having somebody who's familiar with SQL or whatever your database is. Is going to be really important in order to do that but what you're looking for is identifying the bottlenecks that are preventing people from getting to that aha moment and use that analysis to prioritize your your loops through that build measure learn loop right um but plan for some perseverance plan for iteration and just focus on how how can we move faster each time and learn more each time and be more informed each time a related point to the analytics thing is um to stay as close to your users as you possibly can. So analytics is going to tell you part of the story. It's going to tell you what's going on, but it doesn't necessarily tell you why. And what I've seen is that way too many founders, way too many businesses sort of hide behind their computers um, and just look at the analytics. And um, as a result, it it really slows down their ability to make progress um, because they'll end up doing a lot of iteration based on their analytics because they see a bottleneck, but they, you know, by doing simple things like bringing in a couple of users and doing some user tests, very often you can find out sort of the why that's causing that bottleneck much, much faster than you would by just kind of running a bunch of sort of blind tests. And so it's really important to have a plan at the outset to engage uh, with your customers really throughout that entire journey. Um, Make sure you know exactly what they do what they think, what they like and they don't like about the product. Um, and that usually means, you know, direct communication, and not not just surveys, but, um, you know, maybe phone calls or email communication or face-to-face or whatever. Um, it's important to keep in mind that that not all of that feedback is going to be equal. Um, your, your biggest fans, I think, um, probably matter the most. Uh, you want to find out what it is that they like about your product and learn sort of everything about them that you can. Those are your kind of your your archetypes because you want to be able to find more people like them. Those are the people that are most likely to engage, most likely to, to, to spend money, most likely to refer their friends. And so you want to figure out everything you can about them so that you can go get more of them. Right? Uh, and then the other group I think I would pay attention to are the people that are sort of on the fence. They like the product, but they don't necessarily love it. Um, you know, but they're close. And so can you find out why and figure out how to kind of give them what they want, make that core experience um, just a little bit better to kind of push them over the edge? And then there's a group of people that just don't really like the product, right? And I think that's okay. Not every product is is perfect for everyone. Um, ideally, you have a really focused kind of customer archetype that you're going after, and that means that your software is going to be opinionated. It means that it's not going to be appealing to everybody, and that's totally okay. So, uh, a lot of companies kind of spend all of their energy trying to kind of appease those folks. And what ends up happening often is that's where you kind of get into the to the featureitis thing where are constantly having to build more features. You end up rounding off the edges of your product and just making it a lot less compelling for anybody. You kind of make a really vanilla product because you're trying to appeal to everybody. So um, so all that's super, super important. Have qualitative data, but also supplement it with qualitative Um, and, you know, stay super, super close to your customers throughout the entire process. The next law is what I call seed and curate. So uh, a major, major flaw in many uh, user-generated content sites is this idea that if I build it, people will come, right? And so um, either with marketplace businesses or with uh, user-generated content sites, companies sort of wait for the users to show up and dictate what the product is going to be and what i would advocate for instead is to leverage internal resources especially in the beginning to create just really great examples of the kinds of user-generated content that you hope the community eventually creates and that solves a bunch of problems for you right it populates um it populates the product with content so that it doesn't sort of look like a ghost town otherwise users show up they don't see a lot of content there they don't see it being updated on a regular basis and so they bail Um, And so you want to commit to kind of making sure that you have really exemplary examples of content, but also have it kind of at a regular cadence so that the app looks like it has activity in it. The other benefit is that it teaches your users how the app actually works, right? The kinds of content that get created, what gets rewarded, uh, you know, if you have a karma system or something like that, um, the type of content that people like. um, Those are, you know, a couple of important reasons. And I think this is doubly important for any You know sort of machine learning based system right where you need a bunch of data to sort of train a system um i've seen a lot of examples where startups are kind of coming to us either you know looking to build something or looking for investment or whatever and they have this sort of idea of i'm going to do this machine learning thing um and what they don't what they underestimate i think is just how how much training data you need right um and let's say you're building like a restaurant recommendation engine or something like that, people are gonna create great lists of the best restaurants in the neighborhood, You know, either just by themselves or they could be informed by other lists and try to combine them, right? Um, and again, users aren't gonna really question whether the data, uh, where the data came from, right? Their implicit assumption is gonna be that it's you know sort of the way the app was positioned, but more importantly, uh, again, all they care about is that you get the job done for them. Uh, and uh, you're much more likely to do that um, with you know really thoughtful, curated uh, content, especially early on, than either just relying on random people to come in and, and populate it, or uh, your your sort of dumb algorithm that hasn't been sufficiently trained, right? Um, and it's going to suggest really poor data because it doesn't have enough inputs. So, um, so that's super important. And then I think the last reason is Uh, If you're a marketplace business, um, you have what's called the chicken and egg problem, right? Like you need to get the guys and the girls in the bar at the same time, and you need one to get the other and vice versa. And so, um, you know, the solution I think there is, or the best solution is to to control one side of that equation. And usually that means the supply side, right? So um, don't wait for restaurants to sign up for your Yelp app or whatever. Um, Add them yourself, and do it for free, right? And, and then drive traffic and then see if your experience is superior. And if it isn't, iterate, you know, go through that build, measure, learn loop and improve it, right? Um, and then if it is, get them, you know, get the restaurants sort of hooked on the value that you're giving them, send them free reservations or send them free, or free orders or whatever before trying to charge them money, right? Um, and I think that that just gets to the point that in many of these kinds of businesses, the tech isn't actually your asset, right? The the, the content is, the user isn't consuming your product because you have some neato mosquito technology usually um in many many cases the actual content is what matters and the content can be created uh you know again with one one full-time employee can probably create a tremendous amount of really valuable content Um, and so i would say as long as you can kind of get away with it rely on a you know a heavy kind of curation or seeding sort of strategy when you're trying to get something off, off the ground The next law or idea is to identify what what we call growth loops and um, what you tend to find in products that have a really um, rapid kind of growth trajectory, the famous sort of hockey stick, is they they have growth loops that are kind of built in. And by a growth loop, what I mean is a a sort of self-reinforcing cycle where um, a group of users turns into additional users. And there's there's three kind of ways that you can kind of do that. Um, the first is paid. Uh, a, a lot of um, mobile games and things like that will do this, where users come in and through in-app purchases or whatever they make, sort of just enough money, uh, or you know maybe more, but enough money to sort of justify the cost spent to acquire them. And it's kind of just a formula. Once they figure out that formula, they can really rapidly scale up their paid acquisition efforts and just plow that money into kind of acquiring more users, right? Um, that's obviously expensive and one of the downsides to that is that you can really quickly get to a place where you um, you can't really scale and kind of show that hockey stick growth uh, for forever and uh, it can also often be a distraction in the sense that um, you're getting these really cheap users in on the top of the funnel but they don't stick around and you have a leaky kind of bucket and so um, you end up churning a lot of users and they don't end up kind of sticking around and and that is not the basis for kind of a sustainable company, but but that's the first loop is a paid loop, and if if you can find that, great. Um, the next one is is um, referral, and that's what most people think of when they think of a growth loop. It's basically your your referral process. So, um, excuse me, you know, users are incentivized in some way to send invites to their friends. You know, some percentage of them sign up and invite their friends. Um, And that's kind of what most people think of. That loop works best when you have, uh, where the platform gets better uh, for me inviting my friend. In other words, if my friend joins and starts creating content or starts engaging in the product, it it creates more utility for me. Those are the best uh, types of loops. But you can also do this for e-commerce. You can also do this for other kinds of sites. Um, Very often that takes the form of like a symmetric bonus, maybe where you invite a friend and you both get store credit or something like that. Um, If your product has um, some sort of scarce uh, utility that isn't necessarily directly money, um, that can be even more valuable. Like a real famous example is Dropbox, where they were able to give away free additional storage space. And the cost of an additional gigabyte of storage space was almost zero for them, but uh, was valuable to users. right? And so that was a really effective referral loop for them. And then the third loop is uh, organic. And this is usually um, from user-generated content sites, so sites like LinkedIn or whatever. The idea here is that a user would sign up, they generate content, and then that content uh, is publicly accessible, or at least some of it is publicly accessible. And Google picks it up um, through the search engine, through long tail search, and they start to drive organic visits, right? Which turn into new users who create more content for Google to pick up. And so that's the other way that can kind of can kind of snowball. It's a longer term one, uh, but can be really, really effective. So it's, you know, sometimes none of those are available to you, but you at least want to ask the question and spend a lot of time thinking about like, is there any any content here that's publicly, uh, that would be publicly useful that people would be searching for? Um, and that doesn't violate kind of security or the privacy of your your customers. Um, you know, d- does this lend itself well to a referral loop of some kind? And what should the bonus be? Um, or, know can i at least get the math working where my lifetime value of my customer is worth the acquisition cost from a paid perspective so that i can kind of plow that money back into scaling up a paid campaign so uh but try to identify one of those growth loops if you can and then our final uh law uh would be to just i guess an admonition to to not try to scale too early so um there's a project called the startup genome project uh, that does basically autopsies on failed startups. And one of the kind of the most surprising things that they found is that um, more than 70% of them fail because of what they call uh, premature scaling, basically meaning they hadn't reached product market fit yet. And, you know, admittedly, that's a fuzzy term. um, But uh, what ends up happening is they think that they've nailed it. Maybe they raise money, they tell them, "Hey, start growing at all costs. This is going to be an arms race, or whatever." And kind of like I was saying on that previous point, they just spend a ton of money on paid, and they get users in, um, but they end up churning, uh, or their you know their their retention curve never um, never tapers off, so their cohorts can't kind of stack on top of each other, and that the, the, it's it's really toxic and really um, insidious because it can often take a little bit of time for you to sort of figure that out. Um, because as long as you're kind of scaling up your paid budget, um, you know, your total users and even your active users look like it's going up. So, um, really, you know, kind of a dangerous place to be, um, in terms of product market fit and kind of how you can figure out where, whether you're there or not, a couple of sort of, uh, I guess, rules of thumb, maybe, um, these aren't prescriptive, but, you know, generally speaking, if you can get to a place where you're getting, you know, even a hundred users a day, from organic, meaning, you know, including referral. Um, That's a really good sign. There's a guy named Sean Ellis who um, runs the Growth Hackers community and he advocates asking your users a question, uh, you know, how disappointed would you be if our product went away? And if 40% of your users say they would be very disappointed, odds are that's, you know, you're in good shape. That's That's a really good sign. And so until you get there, I think, you know, your team should be focused aggressively on iterating on your product again until kind of product market fit is sort of achieved. And you are testing acquisition channels, but you're, you're, you're really just trying to get enough users into the product to kind of see how it's being used, figure out what parts of your product are busted so that you could improve them and kind of get to closer to, that, you know, again, to that product market fit kind of um, phase. And only then do you really start to aggressively focus on on scaling things. So that's it. Those are my, uh, I guess, eleven rules or laws or whatever for uh, building better products. Um, you know, obviously these don't guarantee success, um, and obviously they're not comprehensive either. But I do think that um, you know, to the degree that those rules are relevant to the type of product that you're trying to build, I think that those rules can dramatically increase your odds. Um, you know, I've, I've just seen so many really, you know, beautifully designed, well-engineered products that people. Just don't use right uh, because either they didn't validate that people want it, or they didn't get that on you know that onboarding experience right, or they didn't do enough job of keeping them around, or you know th- you know their product could lend itself well to growth loops that they didn't take advantage of, or whatever. And so, um, don't be one of those people, right? Um, I think that's pretty much it for today. Uh, if there are any other uh, rules of thumb that we you know left out, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, you can email me at uh, Sean, S-E-A-N, at digintent, D-I-G-I-N-T-E-N-T dot com. uh, Or you can uh, tweet at me at intentionally. And if your organization is looking to build something new, uh, you know, we'd love the chance to work with you, uh, learn more about what you're up to, and see if there's an opportunity to kind of do something cool together. So uh, again, you can reach out to me at email, or you can uh, hit us up at uh, www.digintent.com. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have a good one.